This is the We Spin Recipes podcast with Andrew Apanov. Hello everyone, Andrew Apanov here with a new edition of the We Spin Recipes podcast and my guest today is uh, Martin Frascona, an uh, attorney specializing in international law. Hello, Martin. Hello, how are you? That was a fantastic pronunciation of the name. Usually it gets butchered, so well done, Andrew. Thank you for this comment. It's the most <laughs> stressful part of every single conversation since I'm not a native speaker. I try really hard. Okay, so um, I, I know that uh, the, uh, the, the, the explanation, the intro was extremely short and there is uh, a lot of fantastic and great things that you're involved in. Can you provide a bit some more details Uh, backgrounds on yourself? Yeah, sure. So it's, um, uh, as you uh, mentioned, I'm an entertainment attorney, but more so practice in in the realm of international entertainment law, um, which is a relatively unexplored area of the entertainment industry, at least from a legal perspective. Um, but it, 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 it happened somewhat out of accident, uh, but I enjoy it. So majority of my clients are located outside of North America. Um, so my clients, I believe, span roughly 34 countries and six continents, um, which is interesting because I'm exposed to things, at least from a legal perspective, um, that help me with a lot of my other clients because I view this music industry today of it's a global market. And a lot of people say it's a global market, but I don't think there's a lot of meaning or they know what that means. Um, it's interesting when you have the diverse clientele that I would say that, that I have or, or our firm has because you're able to assist in maneuvering certain projects or sounds or marketing um, to other countries. And there is no cookie-cutter model. So whatever is working in France doesn't necessarily work in Australia. What's working in the U.S. doesn't necessarily work in Canada. So it's interesting to kind of see how you can position certain things. It's like a massive game of chess, but it is in a much more fun and creative way than I think a lot of people envision attorney's uh, role or maybe what they do within their career. Um, it's a much more creative path than the way it used to be. Um, so I don't know if that was specific enough, Andrew. I was trying yeah, to give uh, you the, the quick overview. You are also uh, an author of several books, right? That is that is correct. I am. It's um, not necessarily anything that I promote heavily, so I appreciate you bringing it up. But um, I have. So it's um, I, I did a couple of books specific to the music industry. More so, I found myself writing clients um, about particular countries and kind of giving them you know a heads up on on maneuvering um, their sound or, or reaching out to contacts. And I noticed that I was building quite a bit of information. Um, on the other hand, our, our firm represents entertainers. And broadly speaking, that, that is in all entertainment industries. So book publishing and movies and, um, and music and sports. And um, we were dealing with a lot of authors at that time um, that had book projects. Now, at, at that point, I really didn't know much about the book industry. So it was, I, I wanted to educate others, at least uh, you know, from the perspective of, I've done this. So if you're trying to do a, 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 you know, a self-pub book, uh, it's better for me to advise someone if I've done it myself and I know the pitfalls, I know, you know some, of the, some of the difficulties or some of the advantages. Um, so I was trying to merge those two aspects, and I did. I, I wrote um, two books that were self-published. Um, one was how to market and promote music in Sweden. Uh, the other one was how to market and promote music in Italy. And then um, had written how to market and promote music in Canada, but that has remained unreleased. Um, probably the one that I was most proud of, though, the American Bar Association, which is um, the entity that kind of governs the legal world within the United States, um, had asked myself and some other members at, at our firm to write the book that would educate attorneys um, in, the, in the kind of the ever-changing music industry or the entertainment industry. And um, I contributed and, and wrote the chapter um, about the global implications of the music industry, which was at that time a completely unpublished um, area of law. So that was uh, the name of the, that book is um, 
entertainment law for the general practitioner, and that is probably one that I'm more proud of because it was on uh, it was released with a major publisher. So I guess to some degree I've done a, a self-publishing book, and then I've also done one with a major public uh, publisher, which is interesting because I can now advise someone on what not to do and then what <laughs> well, what to do. So um, yeah, it was, it's um, I would say those are probably the the three main ones, or I should say four main ones. And um, I enjoy writing, so that that's always uh, that was always nice to do. I can't say that yeah. it was yeah. uh, a chore. Yeah, and that's not only writing because uh, you've been uh, speaking at some uh, conferences like Medium, and uh, yeah, I will link in the in the show notes. I will link to your presentations uh, because sure. they should right. be watched the great stuff in there so you just seem to really enjoy the educational side and uh, bringing some value and knowledge to uh, to artists uh, I do it's um I think it was more so when I started to practice law I noticed consistent answers that were emerging when someone would ask me questions um, and at that time I guess it was somewhat limited to if, if I was dealing with someone face to face but there's also a whole world out there Um, so more so just kind of communicate things that I found relevant in the music industry that were somewhat withheld uh, maybe to artists or bands just because attorneys are generally stingy with their time. They don't like to give information unless someone's paying for it. I felt that that was just completely backwards um, in one way that I wanted to educate my clients. It really started off with my clients. I'd started a music blog um, titled Music Globalization. Um, and it was interesting because I would just kind of, again, put up topics that I felt were relevant and things that artists should know about. And it ended up kind of catching on quickly. Um, and there were some, some um, articles that I, that I had written at the time that I think kind of took off more so than others. But that's, that's consistent with any publication or blog. And um, it led to some unique speaking opportunities. And you're correct. I, I uh, have spoken at Meetem um, the last three years. Uh, so 2012, 2013, and 2014. And the, the lectures, surprisingly, um, have gone very well. And I think it's more so because the topics that are discussed um, at Meetum, number one, are, are fairly cutting edge. And this is, this is with their direction of trying to put together the, the relevant topics to um, the people that attend. And they have been off the wall, but they have been very relevant to what is going on within the industry. Um, so, for example, in 2013, um, the presentation that I gave was the anti-360 deal, which I guess just uh, its header is interesting because everybody thinks of the 360 deal in today's music industry. So to see something that is the complete opposite of that, I think, is just visually interesting. Um, and that was, again, kind of brokered, number one, by my experience. I had some unique experience in actually dealing with some anti-360 deals. Um, and then Meetum recognizing that and then putting together an entire lecture series on that particular topic. So I absolutely do. I, I love lecturing. I love, I love writing, whether that be you know, blogs or, or Twitter or um, doing interviews such as this. So it's, it's something that I like to have that balance of actually doing legal work Um, and, and then kind of doing educational work. So, again, I'm appreciative to be Excellent. on the show today. Yeah, so thank you once again. And, yeah, this, uh, this is uh, interesting information, especially, I don't know, uh, I don't have uh, that uh, huge experience of uh, working and dealing with uh, attorneys. I, I'm fortunate to know some great ones, but uh, I haven't seen this kind of approach so far, to be honest. We are so passionate about uh, this topic and bringing value and just educating. So it's great stuff. So how about uh, covering some of these topics? Um, uh, let's see where this conversation will bring us to. And uh, uh, I was just thinking on um, the topic of... Uh, international entertainment law and interna international promotion. What uh, would you recommend looking into when uh, an artist, a needy artist, uh, just considers entering new markets in other countries? Yeah, so it's um, maybe let me approach that question um, one with, with a story that would probably tell you why I got into the international market and then maybe some tips on, on what to look for based upon where someone is in their career. Um, 
if if that's appropriate. Do you find that appropriate, Andrew? Absolutely. Um, so I think my my entire direction of working internationally, um, I went to a, a graduate school called DePaul University, which is in Chicago, and um, the program was um, it was in international marketing, and um, you know I was interested in in obtaining the math. I also knew nothing of the international marketing world outside of entertainment. That's the only area that I have ever worked in my entire life, starting at the age of 14. My father's an entertainment attorney. My brother's an entertainment attorney. Uncles, cousins, everybody works in the entertainment industry. So I wasn't exposed to something. If, if I were to take this you know, marketing um, ideology to a corporation or apply it in the world of finance, I'd have no idea how to do it. Um, so it was more so I, I was interested in obtaining this information for the entertainment aspect of, of what I knew. And I'm forever in debt to the school because they did an experiment with me and they said, look, um, you start to develop your curriculum of what you need to understand international marketing as it applies to the music industry. And they really opened up the the school Rolodex, so to speak, where they connected me with, um, you know, a lot of in Chicago, but in the Midwest, um, who were maybe alumni of the school. They put me in touch with people who worked at labels that were also alumni or current students of the school. And it, it really started off, I saw a consistent theme. And I think the theme was very alarming to me. Because um, I would work with bands who had done you know, fairly well in Chicago. And I would ask them, what, what is your next, what's your next you know, play? What, what are you trying to do? And it was always this level of frustration of, man, we've got to get big outside of Chicago. Um, I think we're going to go to Europe. And I said, what in the hell does that mean you think you're going to go to Europe? Because I'm not hearing any plan. I just hear you're going to go to Europe. And to me, from a business perspective, I equate that to you're going to get some gigs, which is great, but you're not really putting together a consistent theme of building a fan base and what your plan and strategy may be and every country is different so if you're just going to Europe and you're using this blanket term that's the wrong move because it's a financial black hole so mm -hmm. what are you going to do and it it started off for me advising a lot of these people um, and this was more so kind of brokered through the research component of the school but I became obsessive with studying the billboard global charts and it really started there and it's interesting to me because if you just go and you, if you're a reader of billboard magazine the area that is allocated towards the global charts is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking every single year but I started off and I still do it today of I go through and I analyze every single country that they lay out I want to know who the artist is. I want to know if they're signed with a major label or if they're an independent. I want to know the type, style, or genre of, of which they're performing. And I want to understand it from a bird's eye view so I can, I can see the trends. Not only what's taking place right now, but five years ago, eight years ago, ten years ago. So it's an ever-growing uh, amount of research for me. But it's interesting because as the global charts are shrinking... If you just go and look at what's taking place in the top 200 or the top 100 and trace that back to 10 years ago, maybe 2 to 3% of the artists that were on that list were from outside or born outside of the United States. Maybe 2 to 3%. If you look at it now, you can have upwards of 30% of the artists are coming from somewhere outside of the United States. So although the international influx, and I'm saying international, me being based in the U.S., the international influx is, is gravitating towards the U.S. We're exposed to more and more international artists. But yet, if you just look at the global charts in general, those are shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Mm -hmm. So as I started to advise, uh, you know, not, I wouldn't say clients at that time, but more so people I was doing consulting with, bands, uh, within the Chicago area or the Midwestern area, I was putting together expansion plans for them, and it was more so so it would be efficient. So if they decided they were going to go to Ireland or they're going to go to Poland or to Finland, what were they trying to achieve? How would they gauge success if they went to these areas? 
And that was, you know, is that you're increasing your social media presence? Are you selling records? And all of this comes with the slight different nuances of how you have to navigate those particular markets. So it was interesting because I kind of chalked it up to, okay, clearly these are independent artists. If they were working with labels, labels would have a very firm understanding of how to do some of these things. And it so happened that a lot of them were signed with independent labels. And then all of a sudden I started to be contacted by the independent label saying, hey, can you help us grow our roster in a particular kind of international territory? And I remember scratching my head, how is this happening? Like, this is crazy. I thought labels would know how to do this. Then I found myself kind of staring down the barrel of working with a major label in a Scandinavian territory that said, can you help us take one of our artists that we have signed now for, she had been signed with them forever, and help breaking them in the U.S.? I remember thinking, how is this even possible in, in, in a time where it's so global that, okay, I assumed labels would know how to do this, but let's chalk it up to no because it was an independent label. Maybe they just didn't have the resources. To then I was dealing with a major label that had no idea how to kind of use international expansion. That was amazing to me. And it was really one of those I bit off on it and said, I've just found my niche because it was also my, my passion. But it's, it's really interesting. So kind of going back to your original question, what should people be looking for? Um, you know, I, everyone is different. There is no kind of, you know, blanket advice you can give. So if I have a client that is contacting me and then, you know, a potential client who is contacting me an hour later, their needs and their locations are different. So some people want financial gain, others just want more visibility, some people want to sign with labels, some people just want to tour. Um, you've really got to analyze what it is that you are doing, uh, when I say you, referring to, to a band or an artist, yeah. what are you doing that is really different than someone else? And really focus on that particular element because it becomes your asset, it's something that you have that maybe you do better than others. Mm -hmm. And then really focus on the goals. What is it that you're trying to do? What are you trying to achieve? And let's, let's kind of lay it out in, in segments, not, hey, I, I want to be the largest touring act in the world. That's great. That's a long-term goal. That's not going to happen overnight. So let's kind of build you know, short-term gauges of what, what do we need for success. And you really start to look at those things, you know, on, on two different hands and try to connect the dots. And a lot of what I do now is I'm connecting dots. I'm, I'm in a constant mode of trying to um, keep progression moving, which is really, it contradicts what people think of as an attorney. Because typically you think of, I use my attorney if there's a problem or if I need them to draft a contract or analyze a contract. That is so boring to me that if that was my only job, it is a component of my job and it's a necessary component for my clients. But it's also in a, in a wait and react model. I'm waiting for a client to say, hey, I need you to review this. Well, I should be helping my client. I should be proactive for my client. I should be helping them progress so that is kind of the next layer of what an attorney is doing now and what they should be doing is looking at not only just where an artist is and their goals and some of their assets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, sort of interrupting. It's an interesting point that you brought up because uh, pretty much everyone right now knows that the role of a manager has changed and the role of a label has changed as well. And uh, it's the same for attorneys. So if you want to have uh, a successful career, I guess, uh, as an entertainment attorney, you want to look into some other things and helping artists more proactively, just as you mentioned, and not just overlooking the contracts and uh, doing such things which are associated with uh, the work of an attorney. It's interesting. Yeah. It's, um, you, and I was about to say, to address something you had asked, you had said maybe the... the um, everyone feels as if they need to come to the United States to some oh, yeah. degree. Um, and I wouldn't disagree with that, but I would, but I, but I do. And let me, and that was a strange answer. I agree on some parts of it and I disagree with others. So 
I will come across someone who will present that. And a client, you know, if they're based in New Zealand, will say, I've just got to come to the U.S. And my first question is, why? Because it's a perception. Why do you have to come here? And the reality is, and um, this is a, a book that I read several years ago, but this statistic always was, it's, it was sticking with me. It's a book called The Entertainment Economy. Um, I know that the author's last name was Wolf. I can't remember his first name. And this was written in, in you know, I don't know, 2005. So it was, mm-hmm. it was some years ago. So this statistic has probably changed more drastically. But if you look at the world's entertainment consumers, people that consume, you know, CDs, DVDs, books, video games, the, the entire world of entertainment consumers, only 4% of them come from within the U.S., that means 96% of the buying market is somewhere else. So you've got to figure out what is it that you are doing? What is your sound? Your sound may not cater to what is going on in the U.S. market. Your sound may cater to something that's going on in the Scandinavian territories. So then you're presented the question, how do I get to the people within the Scandinavian territories? That doesn't necessarily mean physically moving, um, but it, it creates an interesting kind of creative question of how do I do it? And that is where we find our, ourselves connecting a lot of global dots um, mm-hmm. when a question like that is brought up. So to some degree, there's still lots of opportunity within the U.S. music market. That is not the only path. It is really, again, I go back to the statistic, only 4% of the world's entertainment consumers come from when, within the U.S. 96% is elsewhere. How do you get to the bigger picture? And not everyone's music is the same. So the perception of, I got to come to the U.S. isn't necessarily true because everybody's genre and style is different. Yeah, and you uh, you, you have uh, uh, started answering and uh, answering my question and answered it actually. Uh, so the advice is looking into uh, into your genre and analyzing the market, trying to understand these other markets, not just uh, going to Europe as you mentioned in that example, because. Um, it's important to remember that European Union is not uh, United States, like uh, there are differences between the states, but the differences between the countries are much uh, uh, bigger and uh, uh, like even the with the language. In Scandinavia, it's, uh, I can assume, easier to enter as um, with, uh, with a project uh, from the US, for example, but in some other countries, while English is international, uh, language for the music business for consumers it's not always like that and uh, it it can be tricky by the way do you have any comments on that uh, have you seen artists uh, trying to speak in the language of the countries they are targeting right now or hiring local marketing agencies yeah. i have and i don't say that that is a, a bad thing to do i don't feel it's it's a necessary thing to do though um so let me kind of explain that i i think who is on an artist team today is extremely relevant and sometimes that is a fragmented team so you may have uh, you know you're building to, together a, a team of of agents or managers or attorneys within the u.s that does not have to be your same team if you're trying to do things within a, a european market or an asian market um, it, you don't have to have that. You really have to look at each situation as an isolated instance of who do I need to solve this problem. Um, so it, it's interesting. It's, I do support the fact that someone say, I'm really trying to do something within Germany. Um, I would probably say at that time, you need someone within Germany that understands you know, the German market. That may not be your manager in California. And actually, I can pro- almost promise you that's not the right person. You don't need someone in California handling affairs in Germany. So you do need it fragmented. Um, so I, I don't know if that answers the question. I think one thing that's really interesting, and maybe I should have brought up earlier, um, and this is almost going back to, to the presentation I, I gave at Meetum in 2013, just about the anti-360 deal. Yeah. The, you know, everyone looks at, I've got two options, generally speaking. I can sign with a record label or I can continue to build things on my own and remain independent. That's not incorrect. That's just not the entire picture. 
people associate record labels now as this is the broken model. Uh, if I sign with a major label, I'm going to have to enter into this dreaded 360 agreement. Everybody knows what that is. Um, and then the perception is, but if I sign with an independent, I don't have to do a 360 agreement. It's just kind of a smaller style uh, of a relationship I'll be entering into. Um, on one hand, I'm not here to support it. I understand the premise of a 360 agreement if I was a major label. And we represent some labels as well. And I can go ahead and tell you bluntly, most of them have 360 agreements. Um, mm -hmm. And I, again, I understand the need for it. Um, but with an independent, people say, well, independents don't have 360s. Nope, that's not the case. Most independents do have 360 agreements. So it leaves the question of, all right, if I don't want to be with a label, I have to do things on my own. And there's some advantages and disadvantages to that as well. There is a strange middle ground, uh, which I would say is what was addressed at, at Meetum. And I really look at the topic of an anti-360 deal and a couple different components. So if, you know, if you're an artist, this is what I see as key. Number one, really, everyone is a business. Everyone. You are mm -hmm. a business. I'm a business. A band is a business. Each individual member is a business. And, you know, the reality, that's not a negative term. It's just a way to think about it mentally. You are a business. You have assets. You have good things you do. You have bad things you do. How do you partner that with other opportunities, just like businesses do? Um, another yeah. way to look at an anti-360 deal is you, you now have something that I, I refer to as quasi-labels. You have businesses or corporations or brands that are using music differently and providing opportunities for artists. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean they're a label, but they do provide some label services. And labels are really good at promotion, but I'll tell you what, some brands are really good at promotions, whether they're a label or not. So it's figuring out ways to merge with these particular corporations or brands or whatever it may be, where you can uh, assist with certain... Um, things that a label typically provides, but now you're kind of pawning off on someone else. Um, and then the whole premise of the anti-360 deal is there are now opportunities, label opportunities, that, there are, that are the exact opposite of a 360. So if yeah. a label is asking for, hey, we need a percentage of your touring, we need a percentage of your merch, we need all of these other things there are now realistic and legitimate labels and the amount are growing rapidly that just say the opposite of that. We want zero of your merch, we want zero of your touring, and actually we will help fund all of these elements and don't want anything in return. Now the whole idea is these are sophisticated brands that are doing this. It's not it's not traditional labels. It's non-traditional labels, but they're doing things effectively. Um, and that's probably the one that applies to most artists today. If you're looking at it of, hey, I got to do things on my own or I got to or I got to be with a traditional label. No, I would actually focus on the two things that I said. One, embrace the mindset that you are a business, period. And then look at look at the, the aspect of what are my potential options um, to work with a label if it's in a non-traditional capacity in this kind of anti-360 field. Um, I've got some examples to kind of uh, at least uh, paint the picture for both, but um, I definitely won't go down that path unless you want me to. Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's great stuff, and you've just covered so many important topics. So, I mean, it's great stuff, but let me just... Uh, emphasize two things that you mentioned. There is one thing that um, I, I want to highlight, something that I do on most of our podcasts, uh, that a lot of the listeners of this podcast are uh, electronic music producers and DJs. And the uh, mm -hmm. specifics of the electronic music market is that uh, labels do play a very important role. It's a bit different, uh, I think, from uh, uh, some other genres. And the labels are important because the labels are indicators of uh, success for DJs, for example. If you want uh, gigs, if you want to perform, then you need releases on well-recognized labels in your genre. And this has been like that for, for years, even before uh, the EDM boom came to, uh, to the United States. And so 
I, I just want to emphasize once again what you mentioned that's uh, going like trying to embrace the two directions going with the labels and trying to develop uh, your own theme like uh, you can call it a direct to fan and uh, building your fan base and finding ways to monetize it as well and also going with labels so is it uh, something that you can agree with is it uh, the same idea that you mentioned if i understood the the question correctly i, I would not disagree with you and it's um as an edm artist just to isolate that type of artist uh, I definitely agree with you. It is the greatest kind of sector of the music industry to be in at the moment is the EDM market. The opportunities are exploding in the mainstream for EDM artists. Ironically, I'm also dealing with probably one of the biggest um, issues this week for me is an artist that signed with an, a well-known EDM label that is now getting screwed over. So they do operate in the traditional sense, as most labels, and I can't say all of them do. This one that I'm dealing with the problem with right now, um, they have operated in a very traditional sense of how a label would, uh, would handle itself. Um, so I, I can't say that a, a label is the most important thing for an EDM artist, but yes, there are some, some very clear advantages of being with uh, a label if you're an EDM artist, mainly because the the amount of EDM, legitimate EDM labels are growing overnight. And they all have to distinguish themselves in different ways, which they all kind of have different strengths and different weaknesses. So that presents opportunity opportunities. It, it's not, hey, I've got to do A or B. You can now do A, B, C, D, or E. I mean, there's other opportunities out there. So you don't have to be kind of streamlined and, and pigeonholed into a particular thing if you're an EDM artist. So I, I would say, going back, that generally the, the two models still apply. It's either label mm -hmm. um, or it is you know, a fragment that it's a label, but there's different types of labels now. Or you can continue to operate this you know, um, do-it-yourself or independent mentality, this direct mm -hmm. fan. I yeah. almost envision direct to fan as something different than it was two, three years ago now. So it's not the same concept of direct to fan that I see. I, I still go back to that premise of you're a business and your direct to fan is, is different now. And, and maybe to articulate that, it was, um, you know, and this was something that, again, sorry to keep coming back to it, but I, I had referenced uh, in, in my 2013 Needham lecture. Um, there was a, a Swedish client that I represented many years ago, still represent her, but um, she was really interesting. We, we, what she was doing was country music and kind of country and blues music um, back when that was not popular at all in Sweden. And um, we looked at it and said, there is no way in hell that labels in Nashville will reject this project. She is, she's too beautiful. Her voice is too perfect. Her personality is so witty. Everything about her, the entire package, was so sellable that I had, I, really, I, was, I, was, I had never been more confident in a project that all the labels in Nashville were going to be kicking down the door. And we took it to labels in Nashville, and they all rejected it. They said, whoa, way too exotic. We don't know what this market looks like. We don't know if the U.S. country market is ready to embrace something as exotic as a, as a Swedish country singer. We don't know what um, the Swedish-American buying market wants. There was all these unknowns to them. Mm -hmm. And we were forced with this problem of, wow, this girl doesn't sell anything in Sweden because this is a genre no one cares about in Sweden. To the only place we could really position it was within the U United States, but you know all of the the labels that we would want to be affiliated with already passed on it. So hmm. she was in this desperate do-it-yourself mode of what does that look like for her? No, no one is embracing it. So we really focused on what were the reasons of rejection, and the reasons of rejection were it's too exotic, and we don't know if Swedes or Swedish Americans will purchase this. And that is an, that's an unpenetrated um, kind of uh, uh, demographic of, of the country buying market. 
We thought we could cure that because all we had to show was that Swedish Americans were going to buy this, which may translate into we have now penetrated a new aspect of the country music market. And what we did, we really looked at all of her assets. She was a business. What is she doing well? Well, she had a fantastic personality. Um, you know, she had great music. I mean, all the kind of the things you would hope to look for in an artist, but we're digging a little deeper. What influenced a lot of your music? I mean, what, what was it that you really, who were the, the artists that you wanted to kind of mold your career afterwards? And we started to see some consistency. So on one front, we were looking for who can we partner with? We have to get to Swedish Americans. Me as an individual, I can't do that. You know, uh, I, I come from an Italian American background, so I don't know Swedish Americans are the first thing. How to get to masses of them? And one thing that we did, we ended up locating the Swedish Americans, which is a massive organization. I did not know this at the time. Um, they're headquartered in Washington D.C. within the U.S. And they had several other chapters scattered throughout the United States, in Los Angeles and in Minneapolis and Chicago and New York, a lot of the major cities. And um, there are millions of registered members. And the whole premise of a chamber of commerce is, you know, it's very clear. It's, uh, it's a cultural and business exchange between the United States and Sweden um, or vice versa. So the people who were members, it was very clear they were Swedish Americans. That's the only reason they would be affiliated with this organization. And we went to the Swedish American Chamber of Commerce and we said, look, we need you to endorse our client. And they said, well, absolutely not. We don't, we don't do that. We're a chamber of commerce. We said, well, actually you do because if you look at the mission statement on your home page, the entire backbone of your organization you're trying to help enhance business, arts, and culture between the United States and Sweden and vice versa. We have an artist that we're trying to bring to the United States, and mm -hmm. we're trying to present her music to the United States, and we need your assistance. And I said, well, okay, she can become a registered member, and then maybe she can you know, send emails. She'll have access to the director. We're like, no, no, no. We need you to promote this entire project. We want a free banner space on the Swedish American Chamber homepage. That's what we need because we will give you access. You have access to her album, her singles, whatever it may be. You become our distributor. You are going to distribute this album. And there, were, there was time restrictions on it. But we said, if you sell it, we're going to give you the distributor cut. So just as iTunes would get, we're now giving it to you. It's a donation to your organization. And we knew at the end of the day, if anybody purchased this album or individual tracks, it was Swedish Americans buying it, which is the same reason labels rejected it, saying, well, we don't know if Swedish Americans are going to embrace this. So we're able to take the buying analytics afterwards and basically we'll cram it down the label's throat in Nashville and say, hey, you told me that you didn't want this album because you didn't know if Swedish Americans were going to buy it. We just found all the Swedish Americans. So guess what? If you want to come and sign this artist, you got to come through us now because we have, we have found the inroads. We know how to do this. And her, her sales figures were, were quite uh, staggering. I mean, she did very well, and it led to other opportunities where she had never performed. Actually, I take that back. She had performed once within the United States, once. It was to, uh, I could probably count the people on one hand. To her next show, because of this campaign, she headlined a show at the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino, which, I mean, drastic leap from a handful of folks to thousands of folks. And it was because of this unique campaign of let's just look at what she does and let's try to figure out a way to merge it. And that's thinking outside of the box. That's not thinking man, i got to put that album up on iTunes and then try to promote it to people and see if they buy it. Let's get real specific. Let's get real specific and zero in on Swedish Americans. The, the irony in this entire story is um, since that whole campaign happened, then country music exploded within Sweden. So she ended up signing with a major label in Sweden, but it was because of this campaign that took place in the States at that point, we didn't even want to be signed with, with a label in the States because they couldn't provide some of the same opportunities. 
that a label in Stockholm was going to be able to provide at that point. So it's, it's unique, and I think the whole, the whole idea behind it is everyone is doing something that is unique to them. This was a, a Swedish girl who sang country music. That was different. But mm-hmm. how do we figure out unique ways to bring that to the masses, and what were we ultimately trying to achieve? She wanted to be with, with a record label. That was what she wanted to achieve. But it didn't really matter if that was major or independent. But she also wanted her music embraced by Swedish Americans, and that was the whole goal, was we've got to find a way to, to do that. Um, and she, at the, at the, end, of the end of the day, she was operating as a business, and her unique assets were her sound, her, you know, her, her voice, and, and kind of the, the market that she carved out for herself. And that mm-hmm. was, at the end of the day, Swedish Americans. Yeah, that's an excellent case study of uh, how you should approach uh, the, uh, the 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 question of promotion and entering new markets. Uh, that's brilliant. Can you talk a little bit more on this idea of uh, partnerships with brands? It excites me a lot, and I think this is uh, something that um, uh, continues to grow, and we see more and more examples of uh, partnership with brands between artists and brands. I know that you covered it, and on the um, on the sessions on the presentations at Medium and uh, the Jay Z case study, for example. Yeah, so it's um, let me take that in in kind of sections. So um, number one, just kind of talking about artists with brands. I think everyone's brain, especially today, goes to the um, the level of which Jay Z and Samsung merged. To me, that is is not the right thing to be analyzing, and it's almost comical because the merger between brands and and artists is really monopolized. And I know that's going to sound crazy. It's really monopolized by the independent um, international music community because it's been going on for years. The Jay-Z Samsung merger was the first time two major brands did this at a mainstream level. And everybody kind of went, oh, this is earth shattering. Now we can partner artists with brands. It's been going on forever. I mean, they really use the model that is, is now, I don't want to say dated, but really has been controlled by the independent international community. That's how you maneuver different countries quickly and you can do it in a way of, you know, kind of dictating, hey, this is what we're trying to achieve as a band, and here's how we've got to do it. The problem I see with the Jay-Z Samsung aspect is now everybody sees it, major artists uh, more so, saying, okay, this is how we're going to start breaking projects. The problem with that is they have to demand money in order to kind of recoup their original investment, which is about to just totally poison the well because independent artists can go to brands and barter with things that they may do well. And that may be, hey, we have you know, a social media following collectively of a million people. And all we want you to do is release our single or use it in your commercial. You can do it for free. We just want that visibility. To now, with major acts that are demanding dollars, Brands are going to think that is going to be consistent with everybody. Whenever they're approached by artists, the the immediate reaction is going to be, oh, shit, how much do they want? And that's not the way that it should be. It's just going to be poisoned by a lot of these major acts. But when you look at kind of going back to your question, what are some opportunities in terms of mergers with brands and, and artists? Number one, go back to, you know, everybody's a business. What is it that you can kind of give to a, a brand or barter with that is different than someone else? And then the opportunity of now there really are emerging brands that have good record labels. Um, and the two that I immediately go to, and this, this changes and it will change, um, but was when Red Bull started their record label. Everybody mm-hmm. goes, well, this is going to be a joke. I mean, this is, this is an energy drink that's starting a record label. Good luck, guys. Um, and everybody dismissed them. And then everybody took them extremely seriously when AWOL Nation went platinum. So then it was they were forced to say, wait a second, what are they doing? Well, what Red Bull is doing is, is really different. In a lot of ways, they kind of offer some anti-360 components. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But Red Bull is also a massive brand. I mean, everybody around the globe is familiar with Red Bull. If you go to the Red Bull YouTube channel, they have in the billions of views on all of their collective videos. How beautiful of an opportunity is that for an artist to say, man, I need to get to a billion folks. Okay, Red Bull is probably the best um, way to do that, more so than Universal or more so than Warner. Red Bull maybe has some more reach than some of these organizations. Um, but also the things that they could offer from a label perspective aren't as clear cut as what uh, an established label could offer. But they're, all able, they're also able to kind of use more creative elements of here's what we can give and here's what we cannot give. Um, the other one that I really think of is, is Hard Rock. Um, mm -hmm. Hard Rock is Hard Rock um, cafes and uh, the hotels and casinos. They started a, a record label. This was several years ago, and um, I am, I'm, was um, at least have an intimate understanding of, of how they operate because one of the attorneys at our firm represented, uh, still does, represents one of the first groups that, well, the first group that ever signed with Hard Rock Records. And what they are doing is the opposite of what a label would do. They're mm -hmm. partnering with artists and saying, we just want you to be happy at the end of the day. So what does that look like? Um, do we need to pay for your recordings? Um, you know, if that answer is yes, if you were with a traditional label, well, absolutely, that record label is going to own those recordings. They fronted the cost. When you could look at a hard rock or some other anti-360 labels, and they would go, well, great, we'll front the recording. And by the way, you guys own that recording. We just gave you money to do it because you said that's what you need. They're not demanding something in return. And it's, oh, what can we do? Do you need a music video? We'll front the cost for a music video. That doesn't mean that we keep all sorts of YouTube royalties. Now, the, the swing uh, you know, of why they need this, they're really reallocating marketing dollars. They're saying artists do what they do very well. If they have a full control of their fan base, we like the way they communicate with their fan base, that can be the thing that closes label deals now because someone like a Hard Rock or a Red Bull or a Mountain Dew or a Converse or a Levi's, they may look at it and go, well, this is interesting. We want to work with that artist because they, if they have a good experience with us, we're not demanding anything in return. But if we're helping provide them what they need, recordings, music videos, merch, touring, if we're helping, then clearly they're going to talk in a positive light about our organization or our corporation or our brand, which is marketing for that particular brand. So mm -hmm. using Hard Rock, if they're fronting recording costs and video costs, then clearly that artist is going to love Hard Rock. Now they have developed an organic endorsement deal, essentially. That band clearly loves the hard rock, so they're going to talk about hard rock in a positive light, and that is better marketing than going to buy a billboard on the side of a road than hard rock can provide. It's ongoing, it's real, it's organic, and, mm -hmm. and they're using the artist essentially as, the, as the, the bullhorn, the mouthpiece to talk about how great they are. They've reallocated their marketing dollars. I mean, it's, it's, it's just that simple. But it's to an artist's advantage is what it is. It's not to an artist's disadvantage at a lot of the traditional label models may apply. Mm -hmm. That's great. Uh, and uh, uh, exciting opportunity. Uh, but for an artist, for an indie artist, uh, I think uh, it's, it's important to understand uh, some of the things that they need to develop. So one thing that I really like that you kept uh, mentioning that a music act is a business. Uh, so being uh, uh, professional and treating your uh, musical projects as a business is uh, important just as building your fan base. Because uh, I guess that uh, even for these brands want the talents and they want to support the artists, they still will be looking uh, at the audiences that they will be sort of acquiring with uh, uh, on-site signing a band or an act. So this is important, uh, basically just being professional and building your project as a business and uh, building a following, uh, crucial for everyone, especially just starting out. Uh, is this also like a, an appropriate 
summary? I, I know that I didn't cover it, all No, I would say things. that's absolutely a, an appropriate summary. I mean, again, first and foremost, it's the music business. So music is the most important component. But today, it's not the only component. It's, it's what are the other things that make someone tick? That could be as simple as their fan base. And then to fragment that more and more is that the social media platform. And to fragment that more, are we referring to Facebook or Twitter or Instagram? It's funny. I actually had a client who just got signed because of their Instagram following. Their Twitter mm -hmm. was shit. Their Facebook was shit. Their Instagram was through the roof. Their music, okay. But the label was so infatuated with what they could do from an Instagram perspective that they saw that as an asset. So it's, it's, it's really, I mean, it's a combination of factors. It's music. It's social media. It's touring. It's fan base. It's merch. It's the type of fan that you have, male, female. What is the geographical location of most of your fans? Are they in Austria? Are they in Germany? Are they in the United States? What are, what, what's the age? What's the general profession of these people? You have to be so consumed with those details because that really tells you what the overall asset is, which essentially tells you what you need to be doing and the things that you can be using to barter to kind of up um, you know, your, your ability or whatever your overall objective may be. Excellent. Uh, Martin, I've got uh, actually so many other questions to you, but we need to wrap it up right now. <laughs> sure. I mean, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for the insights. Uh, do you have uh, anything that uh, you uh, want to mention to the artists listening to the show? And also, I want to um, mention the maybe the, the place where uh, people can find out more about you, even though I will be linking to your websites from the show notes, but still. So, a closing thought? No, look, I appreciate being on this. It was a lot of fun, and, and hopefully you'll have me back. Um, no, it's, uh, you know, there's the, in terms of the places that you can find me, um, I'm pretty active on Twitter, and that's at Frescona Music. Um, I do update my blog pretty frequently. It's more so what I would find relevant legal topics and how it applies to an independent artist or what's going on in the international community. Um, and that is musicglobalization.com. And then um, the firm website, it's frasconalaw.com. I'm not the, uh, the main frascona there. But um, a really interesting video if someone's just looking for a, a kind of a, a quick background. We all have... Um, Um, kind of a, a resume uh, video yeah, they're project. Really nice. that's, yeah, 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 that's a, about three minutes in, in length, so that will kind of give you a very broad overview of uh, kind of the spectrum of, of my career as well. And that's at frescolaw.com. Great. So thank you a lot for everything. And uh, yeah, so I hope that uh, the listener uh, got some interesting and uh, practical uh, thoughts and ideas out of this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Learn how we can help you improve your music career at wespin12.com.